RiskWatch is a due diligence and compliance podcast featuring interviews with leading compliance, investigations, and research professionals to shed light on global corruption and compliance-related issues. RiskWatch is brought to you by VCheck Global, a business-to-business provider of due diligence, background checks, employment screening, document retrieval, and specialized research of both business entities and individuals. Seth Harlan of Riskwatch here, joined by Claire Conlin, partner in Whiting Case's London office. Claire leads the firm's business and human rights interest group and consults on issues including modern slavery, sustainability, and human rights training. Claire, it's wonderful to have you on Riskwatch. Thanks very much for having me. To kick off, could you please share a bit about Whiting Case's business and human rights interest group? Sure. We had a lot of informal collaboration around business and human rights for a number of years before the group was formally created in 2018. Starting off from the UN Guiding Principles endorsement 2011, that started movement in the legal sector. And then 2015, 2016, the International Bar Association, the American Bar Association, the English Law Society, they all endorsed the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. So in 2016, as a firm, we rolled out a fundamentals of business and human rights training for all of the lawyers around the firm in three different regions, the Americas, EMEA, and Asia. And we won an FT Innovative Lawyers Award for that training back in 2016. And the more legislation started happening. We were getting a growing number of client queries. We were sharing these best practices around the firm. And all of that led to the formal creation of the interest group in 2018. So that allows really the firm's infrastructure to support the collaboration and training And I was really honored and privileged to be asked to lead the group back then. We now have a core team that's really closely connected in different offices around the firm that includes members in the U.S., so Tara Lee, Emily Holland in particular in the U.S., Chris McGarry in London, Jacqueline McLennan in Brussels, and then in Germany, Berlin and Frankfurt, Julia Sitter, Anna Burkhart, Christian Thiessen, Norbert Wimmer. So we we have a, a, a team that we collaborate quite a lot together, and there are almost 160 members of the group now around the firm. So one thing I'm curious about, does the team typically operate independently or are you operating in support of the firm's other practices? No, we thought about that quite a lot, actually. It's not a standalone practice. So the structure is an interest group, which is cross-practice and cross-jurisdiction. So the aim is to have an awareness of business and human rights in all of the different practices and to share those insights and learnings without it being a, a standalone practice area. I've noticed your early legal career focused on international arbitration and construction. So what spurred you to add human rights diligence into your portfolio? That's a a bit more of a personal journey, a a long time in the making. I had interest and awareness from about human rights from pro bono work as a junior lawyer, particularly in responsible business conduct. And I took a short course with an organization called Advocates for International Development in 2008. Um, and then I went on maternity leave in 2011 and I completed an LLM and I took a human rights, international human rights module and did my dissertation on business and human rights dispute resolution. And that timing was quite fortuitous because 2011 was the year that the UN guiding principles were endorsed by the Human Rights Council. And then it just grew from there, really advising and supporting clients with the changing legal landscape and always continuing to learn. I did a course last year with the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership, which was also useful to kind of change perspectives. And I think continue learning with an area that's rapidly developing. 
Your practice, it's, you know, as you just described, it's so diverse. You cover supply chain risk assessment, compliance with modern slavery legislation, and human rights training. Do your clients view these areas as overlapping, or are they generally just focused on addressing specific issues? I think most typically there'll be an overlap. You'll need to carry out a risk assessment that will involve due diligence in order to meet reporting obligations and make a statement under legislation. So best practice is to really understand the risks, carry out the due diligence, and then report on that due diligence. So it's most common that there's quite a, a lot of overlap. Sometimes our team is asked to advise on a very specific issue, but I think as lawyers often turn to as trusted advisors, we always need to make sure that we advise in context and understand where there are those connections with other areas. So for these companies that are instituting human rights diligence programs, is there a primary motivating factor you notice, like perhaps penalty avoidance, activist investors, or public pressure? It depends on the sector and on the jurisdiction. So in some jurisdictions, legislative obligations are a clear driver. We're also seeing drivers like from commitments to responsible business conduct. It could be investor demands. There's quite a lot of investors making demands on the companies in which they invest as well. And also from wider group of stakeholders, sometimes employees, sometimes consumers. I sometimes think about it in three broad categories, a small group that might have that mission or vision for responsible business led from the top. Another small group that might not have the vision, might simply not have the resources to do more than minimum legal compliance, but then a much larger group in the middle that are evolving and trying to stay ahead of competitors and work out where they are and with the different competing drivers. So these multinationals you're advising, they're responsible for adhering to an increasing number of modern slavery and supply chain regulations. And, you know, we see the scopes of these are constantly expanding. Is there a best starting point for overwhelmed compliance officers? I think the starting point always has to be assessing what you already have in place. And some companies have a great deal of information already from, for example, from their anti-bribery practices and other policies. And you need to address saliency. It's impossible to do everything all at once. So take a step back, map, and then prioritize and work out who you need to involve. And usually that will be a multidisciplinary core like working group team from the different parts of the business. And once you have identified that group and where the, the highest priorities are, then you can make a start. So what regulation that's top of mind in the risk mitigation space at the moment, it's compliance with the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And a pressing challenge here, it's importers, you know, they need to comply with law to demonstrate that their items have no ties to forced labor, either directly or indirectly. So just given the transparency challenges of conducting due diligence in China, how can companies best position themselves to be in compliance? Right. So the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act has been in place what we're mid-August, so it's been about seven weeks. So it's still like, quite early days. And I guess it's important to remember my U.S. colleagues always remind me that the U.S. has prohibited the import of goods produced wholly or in part with forced labor for decades since the Tariff Act of 1930. But there were various loopholes and other legislation that meant that it wasn't enforced in quite the same way. So the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act establishes this rebuttable presumption that goods produced wholly or in part in the Xinjiang region um, have been made with forced labor. And it's quite a high burden of proof. 
There's no de minimis exception for low value or non-key components. So if any part or product has produced there, then the final product could be subject to this rebuttable presumption. There are four high priority sectors, apparel, cotton and cotton products, silica-based products, and tomatoes, which may be surprising, but I learned that about 25% of tomato paste comes from that region, and about 40% of the world's polysilicon comes from that region. So thinking about the, that's those why the, those are high priority areas. The CBP tends to take a, a risk-based enforcement approach. So for the companies that are looking at it, there are two key guidance documents to look at that I'd really highlight the operational guidance that's published by the CBP and the enforcement strategy that's issued by the Forced Labor Enforcement Task Force. And those Documents contain the sort of information that companies um, and uh, can look at and the actions that they can take. Companies can then also start with thinking about whether their goods might be outside of the scope uh, and therefore not subject to this rebuttable presumption or providing this clear and compelling evidence that the presumption shouldn't apply and that the goods were not made with any forced labor. The complexity of supply chains mean that that can be quite difficult the strategy, for example, flags the possibility that origin tracing technology might be used. There may be focus on these high-risk sectors in the first instance, and then responding really promptly and clearly to any questions that are asked by the, the CPP, because that will, you know, they, they, they recognize that audits might not always be possible, but there, there might be additional information that you can provide. And just to shift things a bit closer to your home base of London, so companies across Europe uh, and even beyond, they're making preparations to ensure compliance with Germany's Supply Chain Act you know, before it goes into effect at the start of the new year. And I've noticed, you've probably seen this too, far too often compliance training is typically relegated to just a check-the-box exercise. You know, employees speed through it. They really don't think about it as soon as they've received that certificate of completion. So with the German Act approaching pretty quickly, are you noticing an increase in companies seeking to revamp their internal human rights training? Yes. Um, training and awareness has been a part of our offering for a while, but we're seeing more requests that in particular for these multidisciplinary workshops that are involving different teams within the companies that could be procurement and legal, compliance, R&D, manufacturing together. We've been involved in sessions with financial institutions as well, because the, the act applies not only to goods, but also to services. And on the one hand, I think those multidisciplinary groups can serve the purpose of connecting the, the various responsible parties. But it also means that having a joint effort like that means that the results can be incorporated by those working in each of the different areas. So they, unlike a sort of tick the box assessment, you, you can then work out how you implement in your day-to-day work. So just one more aspect of the German Supply Chain Act that I think deserves some attention. It's that obligation for the affected companies to establish duty of effort. Given that companies in the same industry, they can have widely differing ideas as to what comprises a regular risk assessment or you know, even the appropriate documentation of their diligence obligations. What do you suggest for compliance teams that are unsure of you know, the best way to demonstrate their efforts? Right. So I, I discussed this a, quite a bit with my colleagues in Germany. The, the German Act demands appropriate measures 
of effort and what's appropriate will not only depend on the industrial sector, but also on the size of the company, its structure, its risk profile and where their suppliers are located. The Act itself has four criteria to evaluate or they would consider as appropriate. So that's the, like, the nature and the scope of the business operations their ability to exert influence on whoever might be causing harm, whether whether that's human rights risk or an environmental risk, the expected severity of the violation, like whether it's reversible, whether it's probable, like probability, what sector it's in, and the nature of the company's contribution to causing the human rights or environmental risk in the first place, whether it's direct or it's indirect. So what constitutes efforts for one company definitely won't be the same for another. But as a general rule, I think you can say that the greater the company's ability to exert influence and the more likely and severe the expected violation of whatever the protected legal position is, and the greater the company's contribution to causation, then the greater the efforts a company can be expected to make to prevent or end that violation. And just one term that you know we're constantly hearing when we're discussing supply chain issues or just anything related to risk and compliance, it's greenwashing, which has become you know the term du jour amidst this increasing interest in sustainability. Is there an equivalent term for human rights issues? Yeah, there's a huge amount of scrutiny on greenwashing, and I think it would be subject to even more legislation. There have been a few terms used in the past. When the UN Global Compact started gaining popularity, the term bluewashing was sometimes used, people signing up to commitments but without necessarily making those changes. I've heard the term rainbow washing in relation to commitments to the Sustainable Development Goals the, because the different colors used. I think the takeaway is that there's greater scrutiny of public statements, whether that relates to environmental or, or social issues. And that goes in particular for consumer brands. So I think greenwashing might start being used as the general term for these other social statements and commitments that are being made as well, whether whatever color necessarily applies. It's just one challenge when it comes to greenwashing, it's been... I, you know, effectively identifying this marketing manipulation. Do you have any suggestions for clients and how to notice this? I think one of the issues is, is about the specificity of the statement. So making really broad terms is not going to be viewed as easily as, as when you're making really specific statements for what is actually going on with the specific nature of the commitments that are being made by the company. There is actually some guidance that's been published by a few different national competition and market authorities that can help when you're thinking about what the statements are being made, like whether it's uh, clear or unambiguous, whether it omits uh, important information, whether it's fair, meaningful, the accuracy of the of the statements and, and whether any claims that are being made can be fully substantiated. So the, and the important part for many of the um, national competition and market authorities is about um, misleading consumers, so making sure that any statements aren't going to uh, mislead consumers into thinking that a situation exists that isn't substantiated or accurate. Just before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about the increasing specialization of compliance roles. In the past, you know, companies that would have hired a chief compliance officer and called it a day, um, you were seeing positions like chief ethics officer and chief privacy officer becoming commonplace. 
Are you noticing multinationals adding uh, human rights focused roles to their compliance teams? Yes, definitely. There's been a sort of inflection point in the last couple of years. There are human rights officers. There are chief sustainability officers, the role of the CSO. Start seeing more non-executive directors with specialized experience and advertising, particularly for those that, that NED role with uh, specialized experience as well. And sometimes even the term business and human rights manager or officer. So I think the a number of companies are recognizing the importance of, of having that specialist experience to be able to have a go-to person within the organization, as well as being able to seek external counsel. Claire, I'm so glad we have this opportunity to delve into the evolving human rights regulatory landscape. You and your team put out some fantastic commentary on these issues, you know, just at Heads up for the RiskWatch audience to check out the Whiting Case website to stay up to date on everything you're putting out. Are there any situations or regulations that our listeners should have on their radars as we enter into the final half of uh, the year? I think the one to watch is the European Commission's proposed directive for supply chain due diligence. It, it's already undergone a lot of changes since it was first proposed like two and a half years ago, but that, that will have really wide reaching um, impact, not, not only within Europe, but uh, outside of the, the borders of the European Union as well. And the direction of travel will be towards that focus on due diligence and responsible business conduct as the different factors converge. Well, Claire, thank you so much for your time and insights. Thanks very much for having me. 